0: And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Matthew chapter 25, verse 10. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so to catch the meaning, what our Lord is trying to communicate to us through this parable that he told, you need to know a little bit about Jewish wedding customs for it to make any sense at all. So just a sort of quick, like two minute backdrop on the custom. So in Jesus' time, you didn't get engaged and married like we are now. You get betrothed, which is sort of a little bit more than engaged, but a little bit less than married. So um, actually, if you go to a traditional Anglican wedding, that first part of the service where it says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? That's the betrothal. We still have a betrothal. Um, But they did that before the actual wedding day, back in Jesus' day. And so you get betrothed and then the man would go and get his home ready to uh, to be a family man. And so he would, whether it was on this compound of his parents or he'd get his own place and he'd fix it up nice and that would take a few months, he'd get some money together. And then when the house was ready, then they would have the wedding feast and that would signal, okay, now you are officially married, you can go live together and and start a family. So that's what happened, Um, and then the wedding feast that would sort of uh, commence the the, the marriage fully, bona fide, um, would start at sundown. It would be a wedding feast, and then after the feast, which would usually be at the the house of the bride, the bride and groom would then go back to their new digs and for a week-long honeymoon before engaging back in regular life. And then as now, brides had maids, right? Bridesmaids. Maid is just the old Saxon word for virgin. And so the virgins of the story, they're just bridesmaids. And um, what you can, when you can picture the scene is that you know they didn't have cell phones back then. They didn't know exactly when the groom would be coming after sundown, but they would wait outside the door, usually of the bride's house for this big feast. And they would l- make like a line of procession with lamps to sort of welcome festively now uh, the groom, the same way we bust out candles for any big feast still today. I've I've been to weddings where there's lines of like candles in mason jars for like you know an entrance or something. That's the idea. So they're waiting outside, um, for the groom. And this today's sermon has a bonus feature um, of a a visual lesson. Um, this is a replica of a first century oil lamp. Um, and if when it burns out, then the last thing to burn is a bit of the wick. So you have to trim the wick. man I'm gonna get olive oil everywhere oh okay there you go so you trim the wick and uh, you pour olive oil in here and you just put anything in there that's absorbent for a wick and here we go and you got it you got a flint lighter okay this is gonna be great hey, it didn't work at first service because it was too windy and it's not working now there we go you can't blow out a thing with a mask right. Okay, so just so you can picture it, this is what all the bridesmaids would be holding. And it says in the parable that five had an extra flask of oil for a refill, and five didn't. Um, And I, I think it's noteworthy too, what a small figure this is for such an important thing. That The failure to have a burning lamp ultimately was exclusion from the marriage feast, which is a picture of heaven, right? And the groom coming, again, is clearly a picture of the second coming. Um, what a small thing this is, just like faith, right? It's this very small thing hidden in our hearts, and yet it makes all the difference in the world when it comes ultimately to salvation. So I think even the size is a part of the teaching here. Anyways, that's a post-introil lamp. You can burn it in your mind. So when Jesus tells this parable, there's a, all the wedding stuff, that's just normal for the day. But then Jesus adds this strange twist when he says, the groom takes ages to get there. Right, past midnight, the, the bridesmaids have been waiting for all night since sundown to midnight. And then one of the groomsmen, one of the entourage of the groom yells, He's coming! Get, make sure your lights are ready! You know, part of the festivity. Uh, and that's when the five who didn't, who took the risk of not having enough, kind of go into a panic and they're like, can we have some of yours? Oh no, go buy some. Um, and of course they go to go out to go get oil from who knows where. Um, and then they are shut out of the party. And the point of the parable, Jesus says, at the end, it's always important when there's a parable to look, does Jesus kind of offer his own interpretation at the end? He says, watch, therefore. Right? Which is another way of saying, don't get caught off guard like the five who didn't have extra oil. Right? That's the point that Jesus is saying. He's comparing it to the second coming. He says, And, and there's a, the parallel there between the long wait into the night for the groom, and we're still waiting for the second coming. right? Not just the whole length of our lives, but 2,000 years now. We're still looking to heaven saying, Lord, when are you going to come? We're still waiting for that second coming. And Jesus' warning is, um, have enough oil. Have enough oil. Don't get caught short on judgment day. Don't take the risk of not having enough. So um, what does that mean to have enough oil? Um, The best interpretation, I think, is that the oil is faith. The oil is faith. Have enough faith having a faith to last for the long night, right? It's, it's noteworthy that all of the bridesmaids were waiting for the groom at some point. Right? They all had some oil, but some didn't last long, weren't able to make it through the whole of the night. So I really believe this is a picture of Christians. It's not the world and Christians here. This is Christians, Christians who endure and wait with faith until the end, which is either the Lord's coming back or our own death, or those who don't make it to the end. I've known Christians who've been Christians five, 10, even 20 years. Then they give up, and they say, I'm not sure I believe all this anymore. And the oil runs out, and they will be caught off guard on Judgment Day, unless they um, repent, actually, and come back with oil, with, with faith. So it's a picture of having faith that endures. And what I want to say, one another thing about faith is, um, when we think about having faith, this this parable should rightly cause a little bit of apprehension. Jesus tells us many things to comfort us, right? He says... I'm with you always. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. God is like the father of the prodigal son. God, Jesus gives us tons of comfort, but he also prods us, and this is one of those prods. The parable clearly intends to make us feel a bit uneasy, apprehensive, or the biblical word, vigilant, watchful. Say, oh, I don't know if I have enough faith. Right? That's actually the right response. In fact. If, in hearing this parable and what I'm saying, you're like, yeah, I've got enough oil, no big deal. That's actually a serious sign for concern. That's what Amos is prophesying against when the Amos reading we heard. Amos says, woe to you who, who would have the day of the Lord. Right? Those of you who would be like, yeah, I'm ready for judgment day. You have misapprehended the, the severity of what that day is, right? St. Peter says, the entire cosmos will be dissolved with fire, and everything will be laid bare before the eye of the Lord that's a serious day that's not something to be lackadaisical about and that's what jesus is saying don't be lackadaisical be prepared be vigilant be ready have enough faith and what i want to say too is when we think we're having enough faith often we i think today we kind of look to our own emotions like do i have enough trust and you're kind of like trying to introspect a little bit that's actually not the most trustworthy measure of faith like think of uh, the best image i can think of is like a tire pressure gauge on the tire like how do you find out how much pressure is in the tire I always have leaky tires, so this is a regular occurrence for me. How do I know what, how much faith I have if I've got enough oil? Um, we kind of look to our emotions. The church traditionally has looked, according to James, Jesus' brother, he said, I will show you my faith by my deeds. Do the actions of my life, my thought life, my words, my, just the things I do with my time and my money and everything, does it correspond with someone who believes what God has said is true? Right, Your deeds kind of show your faith. Am I harsh towards the poor or merciful to them? right? Jesus said, that's, a, that's an indicator of do I have enough faith because the Lord said, be merciful to the poor. Right? If I believe him, then my actions will correspond to that. And there's a, a, any number of things, um, sort of front lines of obedience. Um, I often find that the Holy Spirit um, is sort of through conscience often pointing to sort of one particular area of obedience. Something where you know what the Lord has said about avoiding this sin, about doing this deed, about whatever it may be. That's the arena uh, in which faith is exercised. And I think too, um, part of paying attention to the externals, not because we're saved by deeds, right, they're the manifestation of faith, is that the way we work, we tick as human beings is we can actually strengthen faith by living into the deeds of faith, right? It's that Anglican poet John Donne said, you know, assume a virtue if you have it not. You practice something, even in the exteriors, to try and sort of inhabit it more profoundly inwardly. By striving to obey, you actually strengthen faith, right? You say, oh, you're, you're putting your money, your actions, where your heart is. Now, it's a really important clarification to say that um, it, it is a grave delusion to think, of course, that you earn salvation by striving to do the deeds of faith. Right? Anyone, If you look at the Christ's gift of himself on the cross and think that you could earn anything, right, you, you've missed the boat. He's already given us everything. This is just our response. But it's a response of readiness, of vigilance, that Jesus is exhorting us to. So ultimately, the only way to have faith that will endure the long night is to ask God for it. This is actually a prompt to greater dependence on God, to say, God, I don't know if I have enough oil. Please give me a faith that will endure. I don't want to be a Christian for 20 years and then burn out and have no more oil left. I want to be a Christian till my dying breath. I want to, if you come back when I'm 40 or 60 or 80, I want to be ready and waiting for you when you come. Jesus himself, through his Holy Spirit, can pour in that oil and give us that faith. He's the giver of it, and we respond, we practice, and we lean into that faith by seeking to strengthen faith with the deeds of faith. Um, Lastly, what I want to say about apprehension is, it is a really Christian posture to feel insufficient. One of my favorite stories about this from church history is uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of, the, one of my favorite saints, a great saint. I realize I say that about every saint. <laughs> um, his, um, in the 12th century, he was on his deathbed after this long and devout life, and a demon actually presented to him and said, you're a filthy sinner, you, you're a sham Christian, you haven't lived sufficiently Christian life, you deserve to go to hell for your life. And St. Bernard's answer was, you're absolutely right. You're right, I do deserve to go to hell. On Judgment Day, I plead nothing but the mercy of Jesus. And I love that. What a picture of sort of striving to have enough oil, but not trusting in the oil, still having your eyes fixed on the bridegroom who is coming as judge and savior. Lastly, um, there's just a prayer I want to tell you about. It's on page 678 of our prayer books. Um, It's number 109. Feel free to look at it if you want. Page 678. This is a prayer that transforms the gospel reading we just heard into a petition for greater watchfulness. Um, And I just love this. It's from a, a hero of the Anglican church, a bishop in England named Lancelot Andrews. Thou, obviously God, who with thine own mouth hast told us that at midnight the bridegroom shall come Grant that the cry, the bridegroom cometh, may sound evermore in our ears, that so we be never unprepared to meet him, or forgetful of the souls for whom he died, for whom we watch and pray, and save us, O Lord. Amen. I love that, to sort of take the parable and, and map it onto our own life, and to almost like with your ear to, you know that thing in that in your house where you're like, did I just hear something? So spiritually, did, did I just hear someone say, the bridegroom cometh, right? Because he is about to come. And I know the church has been saying that for 2,000 years now, but it's only more true with every passing year. The bridegroom's about to come. And that's the great theme that we lean into at the end of this church year cycle as we round into these weeks that are preparatory to Advent. Um, and then Advent, the great theme is looking for the second coming. The church year begins with the message of Christmas, walks through the life of Jesus and ends with the expectation of the second coming. So all of our readings for the next five weeks in the lectionary are second coming readings and a chance together with this prayer by the grace of God that we would all become more ready, more, more watchful like the wise bridesmaids of the gospel. May it be. Amen.